imagination can exist where it feels like hope is completely lost and it might look different it might not look like loads of workshops of post-its and dreams and 100 years from now but it is a massive act and leap of imagination to believe in anything in this time to have children in this time to build community in this time to keep trying in this time the people are more powerful than those structures and we're just at a particular moment right now where everything feels really really difficult Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a lecturer, a climate corruption reporter and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic and political crises that we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is Imi Carr. Imi is the co-founder of the Impact Hub in Birmingham, which ran for five years up until 2019, and the co-creator, co-dreamer, co-imagineer of Civic Square in Birmingham, a project which is completely reimagining and recreating a public space where people can convene, where ideas can be shared, where mutual aid can be provided and where people can reclaim the act of community as a form of resistance. This is an extraordinary episode. Amy is so knowledgeable and her and her team have been doing such incredible work for the people of Birmingham for the past 13 years. She speaks eloquently and eruditely about the challenges that we face in our modern society and the importance of imagination when breaking out of the stories that we currently exist in to create a better world and a better us. That's the term that she uses in the episode. She talks about how you can't build the future on top of the past, explaining land contracts and economic systems, which often impede community projects from achieving their full potential. She uses this to open up a conversation about interdependent systemic links that render our global system frail and vulnerable, as we saw during the pandemic, and highlighting the importance of community spaces not just as acts of resistance, but as nodes of support and survival when the system begins to collapse, again, as we saw during COVID, certainly in the United Kingdom, when people were coming together to protect and help one another. She talks about the importance of building on a neighbourhood scale and the kind of infrastructure that communities can put into place. She talks about the long history of the battle between the elite and the workers and how democratic access to knowledge is critical to building a better society, and yet how this moment in history is particularly bad because, as she explains, even the industrialists in the past were investing in upskilling their labourers to a degree. Whereas now, it seems, the people of nations around the world have been left to suckle at the teat of dystopia. Sorry for the drama, but that really is the situation at the present time. This doesn't stop her from being hopeful, and this is an incredibly imaginative and creative episode, one that will fill you with positivity, with action, with knowledge, and with the inspiration, I hope, to go out and do something for your own community. I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. If you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. By signing up, you'll also get access to the weekly article I write inspired by each interview. Thank you to everyone who has signed up and is supporting the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, so Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who keep the project going every week. Imi, 
Thank you very much for joining me on Planet Critical. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. So what you've done in Birmingham has been absolutely extraordinary. Uh, can you walk us through your journey from even before Impact Hub and then Impact Hub and now leading on to Civic Square? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, it's definitely a work in progress and it, it builds on the work of so many people. So I think it's important to make sure that kind of we don't get too much into the kind of um, usual tropes of heroics. It really has been mm. built on a city that is full of incredible energy that has, uh, you know, moments of really exceptional history and how it's organised. Um and yeah, continues to have so many uh, amazing leaders and organisers yeah. doing so much here. And, and equally, it kind of really builds on the fact that we've been part of an ecosystem for for such a long time that, of people that are doing just remarkable work, which I'll share a little bit as I take you back through the journey. But um, I guess it there's you know let's not do one of those kind of we'll start at five years old. I was sitting there like we'll, we'll cut straight to the. Um, <laughs> To the moment, because you know everything builds on everything. Um, but I'm sure people don't have an hour to have a therapy session with uh, Imi. Um, but like, if we start back at at TEDx Brum, this was a group of people who came together as volunteers, who were in other careers, um, uh, working in other things. I at the time was working in um, a housing association, and uh, Annika Diva an organiser in Birmingham brought together some volunteers to say let's put on the first TEDx in, in Brum. Uh, really inspired by the fact that the city's leadership didn't look like the young, super diverse demographic it talked about. Um, it was really celebrated that we were the youngest and most diverse city in Europe at the time. and um, but But our institutions didn't look like that. And Annika brought a group of people together, right? This is back in 2011. So almost with everything that's happened, uh, like different era, what, what it feels like to me, to mm -hmm. me now. Um, and, um, and it was one of the first times, I guess, seeing what happens. I think this is well known now, but you know, where people were starting to break down their silos of how they organized, who they worked with. We were, um, moving away from, uh, kind of just this idea of uh, the corporate sector and other spaces. There was uh, business people in it. There was people like me. There was uh, an amazing librarian. Um, and we just came together as volunteers. We started with like um, 10 of us and 100 people at the first event. And by 2017, there was 100 volunteers and 2,000 people at the event. And it had one one key thing that I, in retrospect, can now really... Uh, understand to be critical in this work which is that it was a platform to convene uh, and it was a platform to put uh, to platform voices that and ideas that were on the edge of society right and for us it was really critical that it was more non-western um more uh basically not the white men who ran the city with all due respect to to them because we had a whole incredible dividend of people that had so much to offer and so much energy. And it was largely ignored by this kind of um, really uh, 
inspired by the industrial era, sort of corporate era, corporate sector and a public sector that was, yeah, the establishment, a public sector that was large and going through some real challenges with its own decentralization and devolving its powers, right? And um, and so that's where things started. And I, I guess I never really realized how powerful that would be um, and how important ha- having a platform to share ideas in this way would be. I don't think I'd estimated at all um, uh, the palpable energy I would feel in those events and the next logical question um, for a lot of people um, became like, what's what's next, right? This energy once a a year and this amazing process that we go through working together, figuring out these challenges, working across our usual um, silos. Um, And so I wrote a blog in 2013 which just asked the question, what if TEDx Brum was every day? Um, and not obviously the event, because that would be ridiculous, but the spirit of collaboration and creativity and voices from all different walks of life and ideas with a real kind of vigorous and palpable vision and ambition for the future and a real honest look at where we are at and what's coming, right? What if that was every day and I expected like a few people to maybe read it um but actually uh it really became quite popular and again like very normal now uh, in an era of social media but again a massive moment for me when I realized like you just got to put out you just got to put out what you believe is possible and Mm. share it as vulnerably and as openly as you can and I mean you've got to hope you've got good people around you because that vulnerability especially in this now, you know, 10 years on from 2013, God, social media is a very different place. But loads of people responded and we just started having little coffee shop meetups. I just started to meet the people um, who who replied and we had little meetups and we got a tiny bit of funding from Unlimited. Um, as I really ambitiously gave up my job and was like, I'm going to go build whatever this thing is years and years too early just to be really clear um and we got we got a small grant from unlimited which we just used to pay for like coffees little bits of room hire and so on and so on and um and just started asking the question i guess now we would frame it as what if what 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 are we all searching for what is what is this next uh leap and i guess i could sum it up now because we were young and we were kids and there were a lot of people saying, who on earth do these people think they are as well? Um, but I guess it was a, a range of different ideas that were swirling around. There's something about the incredible civic capacity of the city, uh, the energy there was for people from many different walks of life, uh, wanting to have an active role in the, in the challenges that we face. And... Uh, and to unleash that creativity and energy um, in, in towards towards social issues. And then thirdly was um, I bumped into a chap called Indy Johan who ran in something called um, Zero Zero, uh, which has all sorts of different things, such as WikiHouse, Dark Matter Labs, many other things now. And his work at the time was really talking about how we were organised uh, according to silos and how our our challenges are systemic and if we 
if we're going to tackle them, we have to start organizing our finance, our governance, our spaces, the way we work much more systemically, right? And he did a talk, I think, at TEDx Oxbridge back back then. And that really changed my entire outlook. And so what I learned quite quickly then is we do have to figure out how to harness this energy and take the next step. And so in some visits, we happened to meet people who ran the Impact Hub Network. And this was really, again, really interesting to me. Physical, tangible spaces where people were coming together to give this work form and space and convening and power. And we all know in the city how much space equals power as well, right? And I was just starting to think about how do we take this to the next level? And cut through like a number of years there, we ended up deciding to do an impact hub. Um, basically very inspired by Oakland's impact hub, who were moving away from this idea of just lots of middle class people in work co-working spaces to really these convivial um, in Oakland, it was a black red civic town hall uh, for, for the resistance, uh, trying to find a way to also create a business model, right, to help sustain and keep it, keep itself away from uh, needing to be largely funded or um, needing to, to be really expensive, for example. And so we did that and we did a crowdfunder and... Um, we co-built the space. It was one of the biggest crowdfunders at the time. Crowdfunders hadn't really taken off in the way they had. Now we co-built the space um, and we ran this, um, what I'd say, incredible civic space for five years full of all sorts of life and energy and creativity and experimentation and keeping on moving and platforming this idea that there is systemic change that was required. So to not get it just lost in the allure of Silicon Valley tech innovation scale, scale to ship out as many social businesses that can scale. Like we just weren't interested in that. We used the physical space as a kind of Trojan horse to hire and to make, uh, to earn revenue, to keep it going. And then we were platforming ideas about the land economy and the land contract re being reimagined the deep systemic roots of the housing crisis. We were trying to really bring out a very different conversation. And we did that with force and creativity and a diversity of people and ideas for many, many years. On the day that it opened, or I think the week before, Indy Johar, he said this to me, he said, you're opening a co-working space, but it's not a co-working space. And I was quite young and I was like, the heck he's like you can't call it a co-working space I was like what the heck what do you mean what do you mean I can't call this co-working space that we need to sell some co-working and some event spaces and he was like it's because you've got to really use that as a as just the way you convene and generate revenue but you've got to really start to reform this idea of the civic spaces we need in the future and then secondly the other thing he said if the business model is going to fail but we have to do it anyway and can you imagine, like, I'm like 26, 25, 26 years old, and I'm like, literally given up my job, I've been living at home, my parents are like, what the heck is going on here? And then this guy's like, the whole thing's going to fail, but we have to do it anyway. And as those five years went on, and this is the critical bit that sort of goes into, into Civic Square, 
as those years went on, I understood fundamentally though what he meant. Much to my dismay, when he listens, if he listens back to this, he's going to be laughing his head off. Um, but like, you know, I really did understand that because actually, um, the 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 land contract and the ideas that we were building all of this more progressive work on, the ideas that underpinned that about our economy, about how the system of land works, how property uh, works was broken and it was not just broken it was stuck in a in another century in a different paradigm right so just as a really quick example in in the example of the hub the better you did the better we did and we did really well for a group of young people who did this with a crowdfunder we were at our peak trading revenue of about half a million pounds right as young kids we were doing good but the better we did and we invested that all back into the organization we took fairly well at that time fairly low salaries um which i don't recommend but we had to um the better we did the more the landlord would put up the rent the better we did the more the landlord would put up the rent the better we did yada yada the better that more that happened the more we had to charge the less inclusive we could become the more you go you just sleepwalk into a model of like elite middle class space for people who can afford it or companies who can afford it right and that was just a tiny snippet um in those years uh there was thousands and thousands and thousands of ideas that we were lucky to see have people come to visit us high street projects all sorts of visions and they're all stuck in the same problem right um and so this was an example of for me actually what indie really meant about dark matter like you can't just build the future on the top of Mm. outdated uh, contracts ideas systems rules legislation the reinvention of those is going to be as critical as everything else um and the fact that people had to really be part of that story it's something that people have to really understand and that we can build this systemic awareness and knowledge. Um, and so that's what led to uh, Civic Square, this kind of learning of all of that, closing the hub at its peak, which, you know, I still miss it today. Uh, and it's, you know, it's like a footballer retiring at that right moment. We closed it at its peak rather than let it be just washed away by the same dynamic. Um, and then really focusing on what that, what we had learned and what the wider context was telling us, right? By now, scientists and the IPCC who've been telling us for decades are literally screaming, screaming at us, right? Like uh, about what's happening. Um, And you can start to hear and see some of the impacts more clearly. So in December 2019, we closed the hub, having done a a year close down process like we did the year opening process we've co-designed and co-dreamed and worked with partners neighbors the community on what it means to move into the neighborhood scale a scale both big enough and small enough um that you can really see systemic and tangible impact uh, happening in tandem and what it means to build the infrastructure for that. And I'll tell you a bit more about that later on because I think there's some historical things I want to go back to as to what inspires what we're doing. 
Um, but if I keep talking now, literally, I just won't be able to get another question in. Um, but the <laughs> the the piece that was really critical was then we move over there, and in March, the pandemic hits, and all our plans slow down, and we have to pivot like everybody else in the world. But there was a there's a document, um, and I'll show you some links um, of the vision we'd put out there that you can maybe put alongside this um, alongside this podcast because we'd really written about the interdependent systemic risks that we were all facing, and what is now being talked about as perva crisis and poly crisis, um, and what it would mean to build infrastructure for that. Um, and then the pandemic hit, and then everybody mm. saw in practice, the criticality of where we live, the places that are close to us, doesn't mean that we take a isolationist, localism type approach. You know, a planetary interdependence we all know is absolutely critical and the only story we can pursue, and that's different from globalism. Um, but we had... We had seen it and experienced it, and we had understood what's what started to matter in crisis. And so, if you listen to the what the IPCC are saying, which is, we have to do everything we can, but we have already breached, and it is going to be about coming back from that. Which you can easily extrapolate that a number of decades of crisis are ahead. At mm. which point, things like COVID in the Western world can show us in the global north can show us a bit more of what that would look like, right? Of course, in the global south, people have been experiencing the impacts of largely our behaviour for a long time. But for us, we started to see how fragile our systems were and where resilience really does lie and what happens and what might happen as we... and what might not happen as we start to heal or start to organise in, in some of those spaces. So. If anything, that period really kind of highlighted more deeply to us about the criticality of this scale of organising, not in um, isolation, like I said, and not instead of the city, the region, the nation state and so on, but why it was so important. And I can talk, I'm going to tell you a bit more about Civic Square and that in a second, but that's where we're at. We're really interested now in what it means to build the social and civic infrastructure for climate, ecological and social transition at the neighborhood scale um and that can be quite a broad definition but um yeah i'll, I'll tell you more about civic square in a moment wow <laughs> that was lovely and you are lovely to listen to i always felt like it was in a trance if you can you can just go for the remaining you know 40 minutes please i know it's been it's been a busy 12 years you know i have no shortage of uh, things i could talk about and tell you about so i have to kind of like stop myself to be like hold on a second this is actually meant to be a conversation <laughs> no do you know there, there is so much to be learned from everything that you and your team have achieved in no way does this have to be a conversation. Please lay it on me, lay it on the listeners. I mean, we need to, we need to learn yeah. what you have done so that people can replicate it. Because as you're saying, this neighborhood infrastructure is exactly what we need, have needed for a long time, but especially going forward. So please launch into Civic okay, Square. So, so yeah, look, okay, right. I'm going to say this with a caveat because of course, the last 13 years, we, I've had a rude and sharp, political education and awakening mm. that 
it is not true that every generation takes forward the things that we know to be true, right? Like we know over the last 13 years, and true to a thriving and healthy society, we knew a lot of what social infrastructure, clean air, good quality housing, uh, you know, uh, not a ravaging inequality across us all meant. We knew this. I live in Birmingham. And even the worst of the extractive industrialists started to understand a cracking society has an impact on their bottom line. And the mm. best of them, perhaps the Quakers, really understood what it meant to invest in public good uh, in order to keep the the uh, conditions for, a, a, for what they understood to be a thriving society at that time looked like, albeit with lots of problems, right? Uh, because a lot of the industrial times... Uh, relied on deep extraction from the global south and had a really um, difficult relationship with class and the pecking order. Right? But, but I thought, naively, and this is why if you're listening and you've got children, political education when they're younger uh, is really, really important. No shade to my parents, they were just trying to survive. Um, but we didn't, right, so we've, we've pulled away We've undermined all that we learned about children's centres and youth clubs and local infrastructure and places for people to meet and the thriving high street and capital in the most extractive ways has started to rule everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to say this with a caveat. What I'm about to say, especially if there's some older, wiser people than me, and they start screaming whilst listening at this podcast. Yes, we have always known Um that there is a layer of infrastructure that is critical to thriving societies. And yes, in the last 12 to 13 years, it's been completely undermined and stripped and pulled back. Um, and it's really important that that we continue to fight for and be propositioned about what needs to happen next. So alongside the restoration of a basic um safety net and infrastructure for society i think it's time to really think about what what we do need at a neighborhood scale with some more granularity um and so i'm going to tell a little story of neighborhood transitions that i think might resonate with people particularly in this country and like i said the last couple of years that rude political awakening has made me think about what types of parallels we're trying to draw. Now, I descend from Punjab. I have quite different views, I'd say, about the way we should live and work and have grown up in that um, and draw from many sort of non-Western examples of change and transformation and stewardship. And so, but I've been trying to think, like, I'm here now. I've watched all that's happened since 2011, since we started this work. What do we, how, how do we deal with that, right? I can sit in an alternate reality and tell a story of a different place and continue to watch Brexit and culture wars and everything happen. What, where, where are we? So I started to just think about historically, what, where, are, where have we seen other times where we've made transitions? And so... That's where I think we are now. We're in one of those inflection points where lots of different scholars talk about the old world and the systems that are 
breaking down and at the end of the days and the new world not arrived yet. And here we are gloriously sat in the middle of it. Big up mm. the geriatric men, millennials who have just only ever seen one financial crisis or something after another. And lucky for us, here we are right in the middle of it. And let's be clear, in the global north, having created most of it. Um, and and so we we know that the way we live, work, play, exist is going to totally transform. And then you add on the layer that we know that the IPCC and many other scientists have been trying to tell us about breakdown of the fundamental systems that affirm life and keep us in being here. Um, and you know, Kate Rayworth says this quite clearly as well, that actually she doesn't believe that even the people who came up with some of the 20th century economic ideas and rules would say that they are mm-hmm. relevant now, right? Like yeah. they're, out of, they're out of date. No. So there's a moral story, but there's also just a, like a societal story of transformation required because the ideas that we are living by do not serve the reality we find ourselves in. Mm-hmm. And we've known that for a long time, um, but now it's like screaming at our face. It's imperative of us. So we're in this place where we're going to be transitioning through a lot of this uh, and it's going to be bumpy and terrifying and could be full of imagination and proposition and hope as well. And in other times in society, we've, we've, in British society, we have had moments like this. Um, and Carlotta Perez, the economist, talks about um, the infrastructuring of transitions, um, how important the infrastructure that we build has been in the societal scale of transition. So we look at times like post-war Britain. Um, we were broke. We unproductive as the 20th century economic economic ideas talk about we needed to rebuild our country and you couldn't just have like a prime minister stand up and say can everybody just get healthy and well like we need you to rebuild the country and everybody sat in there like post-war slums it's just like yeah i'll just get my trainers on right we'll go park run and we'll be ready to build this country back like that's not how things work um there was layers and layers and layers of issues and challenges. And one of those infrastructure investments that we understood was the NHS. And we mm. built the NHS, we built it as a national system. Massively radical idea, 40 or 30 years before the idea that health would be a point of need, not if you could pay, was a radical idea, right? Um, one that you could not imagine that you couldn't imagine would happen in the way British society was structured. Um, And we built the national system, we built the regional systems, but then we built a critical last piece of that infrastructure, arguably for me, the most important one for societal-wide transition. Um, And that was the neighbourhood GPs, democratic access to the spaces, the expertise, the ideas, the things you needed to uplift your health in that time okay it wasn't it wasn't like it would have been now but it understood very clearly that that neighborhood scale was critical and important and 30 to 40 years before that things like the medical aid societies worker-owned cooperatives or worker-run cooperatives in particularly the mining towns of wales were started to organize around their own needs and people know 
Bevin talks about the Treadgar Medical Aid Society as the inspiration for the NHS um, some 40 years later, right? The Treadgar Medical Aid Society was a demonstrator in a micro way of people starting to organise around um, this radical idea, which later on became adopted as a societal scale um, intervention. And of course, it wasn't, the NHS was a process and so was a social transformation. So was our understanding of health. And again, like I said at the beginning, a lot of that has been also really undermined and destroyed this last um, few decades. Um, Or perhaps not updated with what we know we now need. It's an incredible movement of medical professionals who um, actively building the deep links between personal health and well-being and planetary health. There's a great planetary health movement going on now. So, you know, even even the things that we know matter will need deep upgrading of their ideas and their and their thinking. Um and similarly was true of things like the community libraries. Um at another time of moving from an industrial era of working to a more technical and technological era. No prime minister or no like factory boss could say, could everybody go and get smarter? Like you get smarter, like it's more complex cognitive work required now and y'all just don't have the knowledge. Um, They understood, right? Yesterday I was at Faircroft College in Birmingham, which was an intervention by the Cadbury's. Um, It was very focused on working class people and the skills and learning that they required at the same time that Chamberlain was building Birmingham University that, of course, would have been for the elites of the time, right? And mm-hmm. Faircroft College to this day still works um, very particularly um, with people with special education needs, with people recovering from many different um, addictions or uh, uh, who were previously incarcerated and, and so on, right? And so... The principal there talked to me about how they really understood at the time that actually you have to invest in these layers. Um, Carnegie, for all the problems of all these industrialists, the Carnegie libraries were um, an investment they ended up making. Now, of course, this is a lot of guilt easing and many other extractive practices in the time. It's not to like romanticize that time. But even at that time, those who had most to lose from society collapsing on itself or not being adequately able to transition into what was required next understood the investments into the public good that they were required to make and you know the Quaker end of that the round trees and the Cadbury's perhaps understood that even more from a values-led space and then so you know we go through the history hundred years that led to a number of different library legislations and and you end up today with Again, it's been decimated, but we went through a period where we understood that democratic access to knowledge, where you are, is critical, free, um, local, and the ability for you as a society to have access to the things that you need to make that transition. And and like the medical aid societies before, there would have been micro examples and organising of this at all different scales. and it wouldn't be absurd to think about pulling away the neighbourhood GPs or the um, community libraries now. It'd be absurd if you said we're just ripping them all away. Somehow we managed to do that with the children's centres. 
Um, and we've put up with a lot from this government these last 12, 13 years. But, um, well, sorry, but just to interject, uh, news this morning, the six public libraries in Aberdeen are being shut down. Yeah, well, exactly right. So, yeah, that, well, there we go. And in Birmingham, a lot of the community libraries had been are being shut in Birmingham in place of the large large city centre one. And I, I absolutely agree with that. That's why I started with that caveat to say, look, mm-hmm. let, let's, let's be really clear. We are absolutely fundamentally destroying the fabric of what will create not even thriving neighbourhoods at the moment because that infrastructure is only really to support humans at the moment. We have to make the next leap um, to a much more ecological and social uh, balance. But let's be really clear. Yeah, we're we're ripping uh, uh, so much of this away. But I still think somewhere at the heart of our society, we understand that, you know, those things matter, right? Um, If there's one library left in, go on. Sorry, but I just you, you brought to mind a conversation yeah. I had a few months ago uh, with somebody who studies existential risks, mm-hmm. and they were saying um, that there's like this is a very deliberate undermining of the social fabric now. Yeah, because you don't need to upskill your labourers anymore because yeah. of technology, because yeah. of AI, because of all of this, and actually, if you deplete what they have access to in yeah. the material world and in the social world on a physical level then you're forcing them to engage in industry, but this industry where they are the product, i.e. Netflix and the metaverse. You make the outside world so unbearable and boring, essentially, that they are forced to uh, to buy access to pleasure because the social world has been completely destroyed. And he was saying that is sort of the strategy now that is happening at the yeah, top I, level. Yeah, I would, yeah, I'd, I'd uh, absolutely... Uh, collude with that uh, idea uh, yeah, if Indy J was here he'd be he'd be talking about a lot of the deliberate strategies that are being deployed um, but these are very uh, these are these are in the image of Silicon Valley they are very mm-hmm. low level of understanding of what's coming um, and and you know I can talk a little bit about the, that piece around AI um, in a sec Um speak to that because yeah i think these are very unsophisticated views and like we said they it, it is what happens when capital extractive capital basically runs everything um and so civic square was really a kind of response to this um it isn't to say that civic i want thousands of civic squares everywhere around the world not at all i wanted to really demonstrate and build in an inner city neighborhood much like the one I grew up in a lot of our team grew up in Birmingham what the equivalent access and democratic access to infrastructure knowledge spaces to convene um would look like in response to the social economic um ecological transition that we need to make right what is the typologies of what should our high streets look like? What should our school playgrounds and front lawns and empty shops? What sorts of modules of ideas and things will we need for this next layer? Now, for us, we're building it in an old industrial estate um, that was due to be demolished for flats and 
we were able to really push for a different idea around what well, that could well be. Done. Um and yeah, and um it's really focused around demonstrating what that looks like and particularly what that looks like, like I said, in in the city of Birmingham, there's incredible people doing amazing centre of alternative technology in McCunkleth, Wales, and Schubacher College in Totnes, and loads of really brilliant rural ecological powerhouses in the UK. Um, the Eden Project uh, are demonstrating lots of what could be possible if we re- reimagined the way things work in terms of in relationship with the local ecology. But I was really interested in what that looked like at an in, in a city level with the access to the spaces, the tools, the micro factories, the community kitchens, convening spaces, the learning spaces, the intergenerational spaces. And yeah, we're trying to build this at quite a scale, not with the idea that everybody has to build massive multi-million capital projects all over the place, although there are a lot better ideas of what we could do um, with a lot of our large empty spaces but it was also to be able to almost modulize it pattern, make it a pattern library of things like we know that we the types of things that we need on our high streets we know the libraries of things the mention the, the intergenerational spaces what we need to do with childcare, how people need to work closer to home um how sorry I mean, could yeah, you explain gosh. some of these concepts for somebody that, like the library of things? Some of yeah, yeah, that. absolutely. So the library of things, there's this idea, uh, the actual organisation library of things was set up by um, Rebecca Trevelin and co-founders, um, but there's a lot of ideas similar to it um, around sharing, sharing different sharing infrastructures. So imagine like, you know, there's a block of 50 houses, they've all got gardens and they've all got, 50 lawnmowers and 50 screwdrivers and 50 whatever. Um, and we know that our material consumption and our resource use has to change dramatically, right? And I think when for in, the, in, the, in the West, we've struggled to even imagine that we might have to do things differently. But some of these ideas just make damn good sense, right? Like you don't want to store all that stuff in your house. You don't want to have that many things in your house. You don't want to have the responsibility for that much repair and cost. Um, and so, you know, imagine if every high street or precinct had a library of things where you could pop in and borrow a screwdriver for a couple of days. You could borrow the lawnmower once a month and you could bring it back, right? And many people, uh, and you pay a small subscription fee and the repair is looked after, the looking after, the, the stewarding of all of that is looked after by someone and that we use uh, things that we use very rarely, like a massive tent or a set of hiking rucksacks or certain things that aren't so specific to us absolutely having to own it ourselves mm-hmm. in our homes and store it in our homes. Um, and so that's an example. Library Things has uh, got a number of different locations now. Um, and... And yeah, and there's a lot we could talk about. I won't talk about it maybe now. There's a lot we could talk about about how how are these business models viable? How do they work? Um, uh, which you know we can maybe talk about later or another time because it's quite complex. Mm-hmm. But these modules of things like that, um, the men sheds movement was all about male mental health, um, 
and finding the right types of spaces for men to open up and connect and do things perhaps in ways that were more suited to a whole demographic of men that felt isolated and unable to talk, but also were great at making and doing and more likely to talk when they were in repairing. So, you know, imagine when you join up a repair cafe with a library of things and isolated uh, demographic society that's struggling to talk about its mental health or imagine when you connect to an older population not quite um, completely unable to participate in society yet, have retired, have got lots to give and children and families who are struggling uh, with time with their children or with childcare or who are living away from their own elders or don't have access to a family, what happens when you start to convene these spaces? And so we know that a lot of the ideas of how to live better together exist um, in lots and lots of different ways. So many people have been pioneering this work and so many of these ideas have been in tribes and communities um, and indigenous populations in the in the global south for centuries, right? Um, I grew up in an intergenerational household. It's not that bizarre to me about the mm. absolute radical difference it makes to live alongside your parents and your grandparents. Um, and and what's required to make that work as well, right? Because it isn't all just utopia. It, there isn't just like some romanticized other future, um, but there are better, smarter ways, uh, more mm. creative, caring, loving ways for us to live. Um, and so, yeah, the Civic Square is really focused on building that um, e example, sharing it openly and connected to it for us then to demonstrate what happens when you have micro sites of land in your area. You've got a micro factory in your neighborhood. You could build community led housing like they're doing in Bristol and we can make um, on those sites with your neighborhood or you could retrofit your homes because you have access to the tools and to the knowledge um so demonstrating that at a street level is another part of what we're really interested in and what the collective finance and governance and organizing that looks like and certainly within that what's the 21st century compass we need to hold look at have and so we've been doing a lot of work with the donor economics action lab um looking at what it means to downscale the donut to the neighborhood scale they're co-creating and understanding the baseline of where we're at and then looking at how we can act um, and the leverage points. So we've been doing a lot of work on an actual direction that might be huge, but like is actually the correct direction, isn't, isn't one. And it's an honest direction that tells us that we are hugely overshooting on our planetary um, boundaries and we are massively under performing in terms of supporting the needs of our people and the 21st century challenge is to get into the safe and just space where we can balance them both whether that feels possible or not um where we are at um or whether we can imagine it in our lifetimes having the honest reality of the direction we need to go in um has been really important and again like we did at the hub it, in our local organizing and convening it's really been about platforming these ideas and building and co-creating understanding around them so yeah that's that's civic square and that's what we're trying to do we had quite a big delay during the pandemic in terms of construction and capital project but we are back 
live with that now and fundraising um, for that. So if you're interested in doing something remarkable, right, like get in touch with me because it's really time to to shift to the next paradigm. And I know there's people out there with with money that's burning a hole in their pocket. And we can learn a lot from previous generations of people who had money burning a hole in their pocket. Uh, and we don't have to keep following the same story that we're stuck in. And we don't have to keep being led by uh, a small group of men in Silicon Valley um, about how the rest of society is going to work. Albeit that scale of capital is really running running a lot, right? Um, but through the pandemic in those delays, we did lots of like creative turning our local green spaces into public living rooms, lots and lots of pop-up ways to reimagine the spaces um so feel free to like look at a lot of our work online to have a peek at how we did a lot of that um so yeah that's Civic Square amazing it's uh everything is such an achievement as I'm listening to you I'm thinking just about how everyone I interview is like you know these local acts of community resistance are so so fundamentally important and a huge part of of the ecosystem of resilience that has to happen because it's all very well and good having the theorists that are like bringing out the big ideas of how this could work on an international or a national scale. And we, we need to have those ideas. But to break through the, the barrier of, of power, essentially, or the current paradigm, you need to implement those on a local level to show that they are not only work, but that they're effective and they're helpful and get your community behind in order to sort of spread the word. Um, it's, just, yeah, it's just beautiful. Absolutely. And in a lot of those historical examples that I talked about, often they those things did predate um, those demonstrators. Those the movement from a, from the ground up often did predate mm. then that becoming public and societal good infrastructure that was adopted by governments and and like I think it's criti- critical. You have to be able to build things that people can see and feel that are ambitious, that are tangible, that that start to step into a different paradigm um and, and and they later then go on to be adopted as as um you know visions for for national for a national peace and like i said i don't i don't praise the industrialists for a lot given that most of their wealth was extracted from the places that you know my ancestors and many of my peers were from but what i do rate them for is the moments that they realised they had to invest in wider public good, that they had to show that cleaner air, higher quality housing, access to green spades for the workers, access to health. When they had to make those points, they actually did it. Birmingham's littered with a history of gifted and covenants on land uh, that is in service of those things. Um, It is littered with examples of investments into building that sort of thing in different ways. Boreville Village Trust is an example of that from the Cadbury's. Now, this is not trying to romanticise it, but um, at all, because of course it shouldn't be romanticised. And a lot of these, lot of these structures are currently really struggling with our, our um, model of progress at the moment. But what I do, what you can see is a hundred years later, covenants that were in were done by privately wealthy individuals. Uh, private, the private sector would have been the private sector at that time that you would would be unbelievable to think of now, right? 
Um, mm. you, you, there's very little that happening with with uh, massive wealth in service of public good, right? We're just continually looking for new ideas to create more ROI to keep inflating this imaginary pot of of extreme wealth that is going to do what, right? It's going to do yeah. what with what the IPCC have, have told us about. So I just, I like I said, I don't praise them for, for, for loads, but no, I am interested in that because I think that often predates then a societal shift. Governments don't move to the most radical ideas immediately. They move to what the people shift them to move towards. Um, and, you know, that's got all sorts of challenges with what's happening right now. But it is critical that we believe and draw from our own damn history, even if we don't want to have a respect for uh, a wider understanding of a different way of living, which I certainly don't think that Britain uh, and the UK, particularly in England, with what what's happening right now, is that interested in an, at a national scale. It might be in its pockets of organising and activists and amazing work that's happening, but at a governmental scale, it's certainly what not, they're not interested in. So for me, even in this very short period of time, whilst I'm not thinking about, whilst I'm not relaying to the longer term picture here, we should be drawing from our own damn history, right? Which is that it is really critical that um, that we all engage in understanding the building blocks of a thriving society. Um, and we can't even think about thriving yet because we're not even close to human thriving and thriving can only happen when we have human and ecological thriving in in balance so yeah i i uh, feel very strongly about this as you can tell <laughs> but uh but yeah i do think that a lot of the this comes robert putnam is his name he wrote a book all about um how the public uh movements actually really create those tipping points um before governments adopt them and that has been true in in all of all of time Hmm. I suppose the concern now, though, is the amount of A, disinformation that uh, flies around and then B, also the complete evident collusion now between um, media barons and their elite pals and governance. It does seem to be a particularly difficult time to have new stories penetrate the public consciousness because A, there's huge overwhelm and then B, there just isn't really a sort of left-wing outlet really anywhere in the global north that is capable of fulfilling its job of like peddling um, these alternatives to the mainstream because, well, everybody's afraid of getting sued in this country, quite frankly. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, there's no doubt is there that we're, we're absolutely fundamentally trapped in um, in. The, like you said, the collusion between the mainstream media and uh, those with a very singular view about what and how we traverse the coming years, right? Like, um, it's everywhere. It's in education. It's it's everywhere. Like, you know, skill. the skills agenda has, has moved to productivity and return on investment. Like, capital is... is in the most extractive ways, ruling everything. Development is happening in in Birmingham city centre. We've um, we've completely uh, paved paradise, right? Like we've paved through all the public squares. Has created an unbelievable amount of heat island effect. 
um we have on the hottest day of 2022 the local park where i live summerfield park was seven degrees cooler than the main public square in the center of birmingham that had just been built right like we we've lost the plot Mm. and 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 you know the everywhere i look everywhere i go all the work i see in the neighborhood people do understand this they really understand this there is incredible movements at all scales around land ecology around um so, so like and around so much of what we know is going to be so important in the coming years and i do agree that I think one of the things that is adding to not apathy, I don't think there's apathy, I think people are burnt out. Mm. I think that's a particular strategy that's being employed to push things down. And yeah, people are politically homeless, right? It's terrifying what's what's just happened. We can't even differentiate between the main ruling party and the opposition at the moment. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's devastating yeah. to see, and all, all I hope is I knew some of the people that have gone to join that administration, and all I hope is that they know what they're doing, right? All I not, all I hope is this 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 is some big game to get into power and to yeah. understand power in this country. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not yeah. entirely sure that this is at all yeah. how you should run that strategy. But look, yeah. I'm still going to hold out, yeah, hold, yeah, hold yeah. out hope at the moment. But uh, you know, my political views are very much. Uh, very different to what is currently happening right now and I and I think with people like Jeremy Corbyn you can see exactly what happened in the mainstream media mm-hmm. colluded and what what, what and his own party just, yeah in, uh, yeah exactly yeah. in his own party just the terrifying well the mainstream media and that party are also very much Mm, powers pal- as well right like completely um, yeah 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 yeah. but like but the you know the leading civil servants just for context for any international leaders the leading civil senior civil servants in uh, the labor party undermined the elected leader yeah. um and the documents there was a report and documents were leaked and all this kind of stuff um and it has not been covered by a single mainstream paper in the yeah. six months now that it was published al jazeera even did a full documentary on it not yeah. one single article yeah, and and um, you know he's just been blocked again from yeah. um, being able to run as an MP. It's the most, it's just shocking. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, I, look, I'm not, I'm not here to like. I feel differently about hope, but I do, I do absolutely, fundamentally in my soul, deeply, deeply believe that, um. Alongside all of the energy and hope and work that's happening in communities, in neighborhoods, um, in cities all over this country. And there is so much, there is so, so much to draw on that we can't see each other. That's difficult. Like you said, the media is not rising the story up and we don't have effective ways of rising the story up. But I, I don't think it's going to work. Right. I don't think in any of history we've ever seen that this strategy works, right? Because once you get to a stage where those systems are crumbling, you start to see a resilience that cannot 
and you start to see an organizing and you start to see a healing and you start to see a coming together that cannot be organized by the conglomerates, that cannot be organized by uh, and manipulated by the mainstream media. And so just one example of that is that small moment in time in the pandemic where we felt the worst of a, a global crisis and we were all in that first lockdown and we were all as uncertain as one another. Um, and it's that first lockdown I particularly refer to and what happened when we first came out of that first lockdown, the mild easing. The way in which our communities, our neighbourhoods came together, the way in which we at that time understood so critically the key workers, the NHS. Now, I, I've got a lot to say on what carried on happening with that and a lot to say about what um, what uh, our government of the time um, uh, did. But you start to see this resilience and this organising and this care and this love and this craft and the stuff that only humans can do um, in a way that AI and other things would never be able mm. to repeat. Even in the medical industry, um, at medic the medical professions, many of them say themselves, there's so much that technology is going to do to remove human error, right? And there's so many operations and types of interventions that can happen better with technology. That's freaking great. That isn't to displace people. People will will need to and will always be unlocked in a way that only people can be, which is for care and craft and for love and complex cognition and for crisis and for reimagination and rebuilding. Like a society that was truly excited about what was coming with AI and technology would be, well, legislating it for safety, number one. <laughs> number one, legislating it for safety first, for fuck's sake. Um, but secondly, uh, would be, would be utilizing that to unlock the best in humans, to remove them from the jobs that treat them like robots. So, um, there's this great tweet the other day from this lady who's like, I love, I love, um, I go into our local co-op, it's somewhere in Scotland. I can't remember where she said she goes because everybody ignores the self-serve counters and queues up to talk to the uh to have a chin wag with the lady serving right oh did me. you do oh you did that too <laughs> this is amazing okay well oh. there we go right okay well listeners that was not planned okay that wasn't planned okay oh, excellent tweet there you go right thank well you look thank you that was a great and and, and this is my a fundamental example of um of what what we're what humans are searching for right so you know that broke woke tweet um uh kind of uh trend where it's like broke is this woke is this right a broken us would go ai let's ai is going to take over everything let's make the outside world like it's like you said so miserable so that uh, people can only just purchase their entertainment and we could just mm. like make a killing off it and there's the future of society. And AI is going to steal all our jobs 
and we should stop technology from progressing and we shouldn't let it happen because it could take all of our jobs, right? That's like broke us. Woke us would be that AI and technology, well-regulated and well-deployed, not just in the service of Silicon Valley capital, uh, allows us to unlock humans in ways that we haven't been able to do over the last 200 years. Um, it makes some of our surgeries safer. It makes our capacity to do many things much, much better. It allows us to automate things that should have been automated, but it allows us to unlock humans in ways that humans are best care and craft and complex yeah. cognition and crisis and imagination and love and yeah. building and, and uh, building uh, features and um, many of the things that we know make up important parts of community. Because when I, people go to, oh, sorry, go on. I was sorry, just going to go I, back. I just, yeah. oh, sorry, I have to jump because I think that word yeah. at the end is so important because yeah. broke is societal and woke is community in a sense. Yeah. And right yeah. now, like, the, as you will know more than more than me, more than anybody listening, is that there is an erosion of our communities and there is a yeah. war, there's a war on community and there's a war on love. Yeah. So what we are looking at with the current paradigm and the current direction is that all of the, all of these things that you're discussing about, you know, the, our capacity for love, our capacity for complex cognition, our capacity for all of these things, they aren't being invested in because they're fundamentally unnecessary now to run society in a way, in a sense, yeah. so the community at the top think. Because yeah. this is the thing around conservatism, right? Yeah. Like the right wing. They are very community focused. It's just yeah. that their community is absolutely tiny. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I'll come back to that in a second. Cause, cause what I was saying was your tweet was very much like when, when we're going into our local Tesco or co-op or whatever, we're not, it's not that we're there saying, don't let the technology take those people's jobs because what we want our peers to do is do low-paid work, sat mm. on a chair for 10 hours a day so we can say hello to them for two minutes. That's not the reason why we're saying that. We're saying it because for some people, that'll be the only person they talk to all day. Um, for some people, that's the, at the, for, for most people, at the heart of a functioning society is popping into your shop and saying hi to the people that you're you work there and so on and so on, right? Um, and so it, there's a there's that layer that we've got to we've got to really crack in our minds that that even those in this stage, um, like because I don't think the future is is this, but like even our supermarkets that are moving to that space, like can understand really clearly if it wasn't just efficiency and um, profit at any cost uh, the highest profit at any cost um would be understanding that what people are looking for is connection mm. community somebody to talk to someone to give them a hand with certain things when they go into their local place and arguably in this moment don't come for me because my views are quite a lot more radical than this but in this moment arguably that's an investment point right mm. that's an investment point if you want to differentiate yourself from the rest of what's going on particularly mm -hmm. in a cost of living crisis right is that people need help more than ever and those that start to move their models to that 
to be more supportive and connected and cohesive are going to be able to have a market share that is better, right? That's in this moment, just to be really mm-hmm. clear. And to what, and, and so that's what I don't get, right? And what I don't get, and this is what happens when we've absolutely removed ourselves from, because what I, in my example of the industrialists, what they didn't have is this like miles and miles and miles of distance from where their industry was operating and where they existed. Mm, yeah. That, and that makes like, so, you know, you might have been like in Birmingham, for example, the Cadbury's might have lived in the hills and the workers were down in, in, in a city, but like they had to go into those places. Like it, you couldn't just have something on fire 10 miles away and you're just like lived in, living on the top of your hill being like, mm. I'm having a great time. So there's something about that, like that unit of change and shift that will, I mm. think is, is critical. And mm. like in the pandemic, we saw people doing mutual aid efforts out of their kitchen and their gardens and serving food and doing all these things whilst literally being able to see on their high street all of the commercial kitchens shut up, all of the units shut up. And the only people with access to any of those units were not the big, the big um, uh, massive uh, companies, right? They were the smaller people whose owner lived around the corner and was able to unlock things safely for people to have access to. Whereas everybody else who was in a, in a very different model was just closed up and locked up um, until, and then just closed out, right? Like um, until absolute down um, opened, which is really un and very un resilient way to run run things anyway. So what you just said before, though, I do agree with this. And look, I don't have the answers. If anybody listening's got the answers, but one thing I do really, like I said, strongly believe is if you believe in what the IPCC have shared, then we've got some catastrophes coming up. Yeah. And they aren't going to be able to be controlled by a small number of people at the top of anywhere. Mm-hmm. No, no, like, yes, look, absolutely. The Conservative government during the pandemic showed that what your government is like is how everything will go. We had a corrupt, extractive, uh, unimaginative, uh, disaster capitalist, like trying mm-hmm. to think of words uh, that, that can speak to this time. Very unintelligent government. In, for, for a government of business, God, these lot really don't know how to invest smartly in, in things that will have multiple benefits. Yeah. Right. So yes, absolutely. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying even in the worst of catastrophes in the global South climate catastrophes makes a massive, massive difference who's in charge. And there's no way that we should let go of that. There's no way we should let go of the accountability, the fight, the vision, this horrible, unimaginative, awful place that we're currently in with the opposition. Um, We should fight. We should absolutely fight and we should be smart and we should be holding that to deep account and participating in it. And we know that unfortunately crisis is coming and we know that in those moments, more and more times like the pandemic will be true and in times like that, the people actually do have incredible amounts of power, right? And so what we do 
in these relatively stable periods. And when I say relatively, it is all relative because as you say, people are exhausted. Their finances have been depleted. The cost of living has completely, like, it's it's the hardest and most austere time for everyone. And perhaps that isn't the time where we feel like the imagination and what is possible is at the at the the most uh, isn't thriving the most in us. But I that's the bit where I draw from probably quite a different experience, right? Which is that I my parents and grandparents came from India. And my grandparents came from India post-partition and they left everything behind, everything they knew. And they'd watched a lot of it be destroyed. They come to a country of where they are back being the shit on people's shoes, right? To rebuild, rebuild the country. But never in the 80 years of which I got to live with my grandmother, uh, sorry, the 35 years I got to live, the 80 years that my grandmother got to live, and I've spoken to a lot of people about her, her, um, how she was. But in the 35 years nearly that I knew her, she always believed from nothing to the last days that she, she passed away. She always believed that something far greater for her children, her grandchildren, her great-grandchildren was possible. Now, coming from the space of having lost everything and to be on the bottom of a ship with four sick kids it, coming across the country to a country that doesn't want you when you get here, uh, thinks you're worth pretty much worthless having extracted all your, your worth and wealth, um, and then you end up doing the the worst jobs and you end up spending your entire life doing those jobs to still have imagination about the future. Mm. Imagination. And whenever you spoke to her, she, there wouldn't be a single... Now, I'm not advocating for uh, South Asian women to not have any joy or pleasure, right? But she would never, ever even mention that she thought... that She, she, she was never as pessimistic as we, we, were, we are in this conversation, right? And that's mm. like... Her, for her, her f- imagination, maybe she wouldn't call it that, but her belief in this world that looked nothing like the one she had be- seen, lost, been part of, rebuilt, was always there. It was always front and centre. And so that's where this piece that I have, I draw that inspiration from somewhere else because these two stories don't make sense. They don't stack up currently in our narratives because it is true, people are struggling the most they have it is that there is a tactic to burn us all out there is a tactic to destroy the imagination and the possibility there is um there is a a tactic to make us not see each other and not be able to know that anything else is possible the mainstream media is is creating so many challenges there's that and that sounds like this world where it's like what could be possible in this then it's impossible and then there's what i've lived and grown up which is the people that I descend from have seen nothing but horror and terror for the last 150 years, whether it be the Sikhs in Punjab or whether it be um, India as a whole post-partition or whether it be the, the times that they came into this country. And whilst a lot of 
the descendants for me of of my grandparents and so on, we all have a lot of work to do to think about what that progress actually looks like. This is not something to say that, you know, we figured out as second generation what progress actually looks like because a lot of people have just followed a very, like, wing capitalist, like, direction. My point is, is that imagination can exist where it feels like hope is completely lost and it might look different. It might not look like loads of workshops of post-its and dreams and 100 years from now, but it is a massive act and leap of imagination to believe in anything in this time, to have children in this time, to build community in this time, to keep trying in this time. And that's why I always say yes to things like this, because we do have to keep finding each other. And my my less hopeful note is that perhaps it will be crisis worse than we care to imagine, right? That will actually activate us in ways and that will actually break us free of of this monopoly that we're we're part of currently um but not to lose hope that those structures because in every time the people are more powerful than those structures and we're just at a particular moment right now where everything feels really really difficult but i i do deeply believe that um that what we and many of the people you have on your podcast and many of the peers that I work with, what we're building is the 40 years before the NHS, where it was small groups of people peddling ideas that at that time the gentry would be like, you must be joking, free healthcare for everybody at that point of need, not because you can pay. Um, or there's a there's a great moment where the Libraries Act went into um the uh a parliament and one of the there's a quote let me see if i can see it and um, there's a quote that one of the parliamentarians said that i thought was really interesting when um when the libraries act was being put into place and he he said um when so when this guy called william ewart introduced public libraries bill in 1849 he encountered considerable hostility in the House of Commons. It was argued that the rate-paying middle and upper classes would be paying for service that would mainly be used by the working classes. One argued that the people have too much knowledge already. It was much easier to manage than 20 years ago. The more education people get, um, the more they get difficult to manage. And so, like, you know, that was that was back in, what, 1849, right? So, you know, these the ideas that... that um, these ideas have been around with us for a long time and we have still fought through and broke through. And unfortunately, in British history, most of the time when they do break through to a national scale, it's because because actually industry as is can no longer function with this level of societal decay, right? And I would just say that no matter how much it feels us that there are a handful of people in the media in tech and in government that are in charge of everything we've really seen if anything we've really seen from the government um a lot of the work by led by donkeys coming out Mm. you know they don't know what they're doing they really don't what they're trying to do is actually absolutely fundamentally milk this moment for all it is and all it has um 
And we are more powerful than that. And we have to believe that. Um, and we have to keep coming together and we have to keep demonstrating alternative futures, telling those stories whilst fight like, and being much more propositional to that, whilst being opposition to these forces and being able to start to look for and find ways in which to um, mobilise our power most effectively. And I say that as a person who does feel quite deflated at the moment by the scale of all of these these different factors that we've talked about a bit in this podcast but it is critical that we don't lose we don't lose hope we don't lose belief and we don't stop organizing and and we don't stop finding and connecting with one another because i do think a new story is on its way it's just for us we're just miles out of it yet and so it feels like we're stuck in the middle of like well it's really obvious these old systems are broken and shit it looks like it's ages before we can Mm -hmm. do any of those and that's a particular particularly difficult spot and that's where I think we have to find most hope and resilience and draw on each other and the histories that we have and the ancestry that we do have and share those stories generously in organizing with one another the night is always darkest before the dawn right yep and lord it's dark right now isn't it <laughs> and long this night seems to be going on for a very long time <laughs> oh I know I know I know it's like god you know, heck, it's been going on for for a, a long, long while. But you know, like I, I, I think it's that's a, I know it's a joke to joke about it, but also like, you know, this is this is the time for those of us who particularly have uh, who who descend from the global south to know that a lot of the things that you know we're all banging on about carbon and net zero here, but a lot of the impacts of extreme weather, food insecurity, flooding, droughts, like so much of this has been experienced for so many people for so long yeah. and created by so many of us on our past actions uh, in this country, so much mine, but like literally, you know, that 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 structure that we are now all complicit in as well and are all participating in you know we and and so many of those communities have had to imagine and reimagine themselves over and over again as a result of us and whilst it feels dark and hard and long we absolutely sitting in this country today have to reflect on our relative privilege Mm-hmm. And we have to give this everything. And that's where it is important to look after our well-being, look after one another. But it's really important to not navel gaze mm-hmm. and not to completely like, I don't know, I don't know what to like, Western spiritualize our own like flipping space within this. Yeah, it's hard. Yes, we have to take accountability that as a country, we can't even figure out how to look after our own people and get them the basics of food and we can't even organize like to to figure that out mm-hmm. so having having colonized half the world right having extracted and created so many of these challenges globally ecologically from a climate perspective from a resource perspective we still got back here and still weren't able to meet the needs of our people right mm-hmm. and so 
I do think it's really critical that relatively privileged people in this country right now that yeah we're having a hard time yeah it's dark um yeah it's difficult but we understand that contextually we still are in the like top one or 0.1 percent people in the world with agency ability resource voices um relative stability to act we have to be really careful about that balance of like how yes collective care well-being all of this is super super important but i'm concerned that we've over individualized it and we overuse mm. it to get ourselves off the hook because if we really did care about those principles i'm pretty sure some of our neighbors wouldn't be starving and going to the food bank right and so we just got to be really careful and honest with ourselves in this organizing and i have to do that with myself right because i am like also exhausted at times and broken and just like i can't do this um, and then I like draw from examples of my grandmother and other other people. But at a, that's just an individual perspective. At a collective scale, we just have to be really careful that we don't we don't we aren't a society that created so many of these problems and then over intellectualized ourselves and individualized our own care out of the agency and power and responsibility we do have to act as well. And I think that's. I'm sitting within that tension. I don't have answers, but I do think that this is something really important for um, uh, all of us here, um, in in particularly the global north and on in this perspective in the the UK to like find that balance of care and support and well being for one another, um, and recognise our relative privilege and complicit, com- complicit, complicity. Oughtness, whichever mm-hmm. the word is in in a lot of this um still because we are still participating in in many of the systems and ideas mm. that are accelerating all of this and yeah look it's frustrating and we feel all feel we feel gutted and demotivated and unable to understand how to mobilize post what happened in the elections in 2017 and what's happening in our political space now but we have to break through that, right? Yeah, it can't be like a zero-sum kind of, oh, shit, the mainstream media, the opposition. Like, we have a responsibility to that and we have to speak. And those who are speaking and those who are organising, if you can't speak and organise, you can have their backs, you can support them. Mm-hmm. And if you can't do any of that, mutual aid, mutual aid is at the heart of how we start to rebuild our communities, right? We all have neighbours who are struggling to pay their bills or struggling to eat. Um, mutual aid of just making your table a bit longer with nobility of finding ways to get out of this horrendous like cycle where we've just put all of that to feedbacks and to services and you can rebuild those acts where you are even if you feel completely de um uh, like f- completely like your agency is is being um squashed by uh what's happening around you don't mm. don't let all that just stop that those acts of of care and love and agency and organizing that can happen at a micro scale because you don't know like like in covid you don't know at the turn of a hat where that might start to become life saving uh, yeah. infrastructure um and and i think we all have responsibility to to that and i guess ultimately that's what keeps me going as well 
it's that balance of like you can't, I can't get inside my head too much because I'm not my grandmother. I am now two generations who've benefited from this country, and I have a lot of knowledge about what we've done, what we're doing. We're still complicit in what's ahead, and I have to use that in the best possible way. Even if this wasn't my ancestors' wildest dreams for what I would be doing right now, mm. Mm. and I think everybody has to really take up that challenge and mantle and and find whatever it takes to not be depleted by that. Um, and like I said, mutual aid is still at the heart of of so much better quality housing, support, food, community, uh, green space. These are at the heart of what will start to rebuild like our, our neighbourhoods. Even if AI is telling you that it's all the solutions lie within it, some do. It's, it's not a we don't have to do this like analog tech fight or battle. It's not that. It's just that we're we're talking about very different domains as what to, uh, what underpins the society. And as much as you know that vision of like we'll all just everything will be so miserable, so we'll just be sat in our houses. As much as as that is true, we also know it isn't right. I loved I loved a good like as a a fairly privileged, able-bodied person in the pandemic. Yeah, I love binge-watching the occasional Netflix. I had a lot of people pass away. I had a lot of grief. It was great to be able to sit down and just do nothing to watch. But come on, the majority of uh, people with any privilege were out in green space all day, every day. Like, you have to look at the patterns of humans as well. They aren't. This isn't like we're not robots. This is not the thing we default to. The amount of people that were reflecting on hearing the birds and going out for walks, right? And they might have been um, a a privileged part of society um, compared to the key workers, but we didn't we didn't just run to being like, oh great, I can just sit at home all day and just play computer games and watch TV. We we moved to something else. And most people in this country, one of the biggest surprising things I ever found when I started to meet people with older money was that they just love walk, going for walks with the dogs at the weekend. <laughs> and all they do is just like want to go and like make slow gin or go for a walk or do like wealth has not always been associated with just hyper consumption, right? So we've got to hold hold out yes it has like there's lots in terms of like like we said the wealthiest people are the highest um uh uh emission that have the highest emissions and consumption but like there's other stories um and often like wealth is just trying to buy itself time and space (laughs) being able to go to for walks and not have to participate in work (laughs) and all of this so i'm just like not convinced in this whole story anyway um mm. uh, even even when you look back to some of the wealthiest people from where my grandparents came from like they were buying themselves time and life and space and and ultimately i just don't think the human psyche pre just keeps moving towards this vision that mm. that um that silicon valley has for us i, be- I believe in something very different but what we do do with the best of tech is we do smart things and i like that like the best of tech allows us to do smart things. We just have to overshoot first because we think it's going to be some, some like answer to all our problems. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, uh, I don't know. I really still believe. 
deeply. In a better world. In a better us. Yeah. In a better world. In a better us. I love that. What a great note to end on. Imi, thank you so much. My final question for you is who would you like to platform? Hmm. I would like to platform, if you haven't spoken to them already, um, Melissa Mean from We Can Make in Bristol. Um, right. Uh, part of the Northwest Media Centre. Absolute legends. Um, in a council-built estate called Northwest in Bristol. Uh, a media centre opened 20 years ago. Recently, Melissa engaged that population more deeply in how to connect technology, imagination and the social challenges of place, of which one was the housing crisis. Um, the estate alone had quite a long waiting list um, for overcrowding, for many different things. And she built a micro factory in the neighbourhood that could use te- modern methods of construction to build, to have communities be participating in building and designing their own housing. Wow. And then they found hundreds of spots of micro sites of land disused, massive gardens that were too big for one family to look after, um, different sites across the neighbourhood and discovered that you could build amazing low-carbon um, homes and start to change the dynamic of some of the housing issues there. For example, unhoused people being um, no longer homeless um, and being able to sh- to find peer support with someone who had a massive garden and who was also isolated and then they used a microsite to build a beautiful home or a home where a family had grown up and then the daughter had gone on to have children and now they were overcrowded and moving away or being put on a list somewhere else would ruin all the intergenerational connections, mm. the childcare support, familial support. So the daughter and ha- her daughter or son were able to move, build and design a home really close to their parents Amazing. and move out. And so um, the work Melissa has done on both the economics of of that, of the common senseness of why are we, why are we running things like this, the fact that she stayed in Northwest, which is an amazing place, but to those on the outside or in power, they would be like, "What in what innovation can happen here?" Mm. She's done it with the people of the place. She's built the infrastructure, like the micro factory in Northwest, and they've got this amazing film. and I recommend you just go watch it. It's only seven or eight minutes long, and it's just so inspiring. And yeah, go look it look it up because. That is something that could start to be implemented today and now. Um, and she's got all of the policy implement uh, in, uh, policy ideas um, and shifts that could happen to support it. So, yeah, we can make in Bristol a Melissa Mead. That's who I'd like to Wonderful. Oh, Imi, this has just been awesome. Thank you so much for your time and your work. Thank you so much. It's been lovely. Um, and thanks for that great tweet. What a great moment that was in our little conversation. <laughs> I was like, this great person did this tweet. And I was like, it's a great example of how tech isn't isn't quite the app. We're just directed in the wrong way. And then you were like, uh, that was me, mate. <laughs> if you want to learn more about Civic Square, about Impact Hub, about Immy's work, 
and about We Can Make in Bristol. I've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast and read the weekly essays inspired by each interview. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, support the project with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. As always, thank you to the Planet Critical community who support the show and make all of this work possible. Thank you all for listening. See you next week. 